Amen. Thank you guys for listening so attentively to that. Um, let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32. And we've been talking about the life of Jacob. If you're new to the vine, we've been working our way through Genesis. And we started with creation. And then that kind of got derailed through sin. And then God comes in chapter 12 to this guy named Abram. And Abram has a son named Isaac. And Isaac has a son named Jacob. And all through Genesis, we get big snapshots of those those men and their lives and their families. And so we've been the last few weeks focusing on Jacob. And so we're kind of rounding third when it comes to Jacob's life here this morning. And we're going to be looking at chapter 32. And we're actually going to be looking at um, chapters 32 and 33. And so obviously we'll be doing a lot of summarizing. Um, But let me summarize the first 10 verses of chapter 32 for you, okay? Now, it's, it's 20 years later... And like we learned last week from James' sermon that he preached so well, um, Jacob has been living away from the land that was his home place that God had promised to give him many, many descendants. And he has been exiled and living with his uncle Laban. Okay? And he's been there for 20 years. And Jacob then, after 20 years and all the kind of drama that you heard about last week and working for Laban and striving to have a wife or two. And so now he's got 11 children and two wives. It's 20 years later. And he believes that it's time to leave this faraway land of his uncle Laban and return home to the land that God promised to give him and his descendants. That's a good deal, right? It's a good thing, but we got a problem. Can you remember what the problem might be? There's a massive tension point between him and some people that live back in that land of promise. And the problem is this. He hasn't spoken to his brother Esau in 20 years. And when he left, there was murder in the air. And Jacob is a man who's a swindler. He's crafty. He's kind of tricksy, like Gollum speaks about the the hobbits, right? Tricksy little hobbits. Jacob was kind of a tricksy little hobbit. I don't think he had hairy feet, but he was tricksy. And, and he pulled a fast one on Esau. It was a very big deal, all right? And he, and he, and he took all of his blessings that, that Esau wanted, and Jacob took them for himself. And Esau had a track record of violence. He's a man that could do things with some weapons. He's good with hunting, and Jacob knew that. And Jacob had a track record for trickery, so Esau's the, the object of Jacob's trickery. And so we got big tension, and Jacob has no assurance that bygones are going to be bygones as he returns home. So what Jacob does in the summary of the first few verses here of 32 is that he sends some of his servants out ahead of him. And he gives them some kind of goodwill offerings. And in that time, it was animals. Animals represented wealth. And so it says, give some of this to Esau, just hopefully like soften him up. Or test the waters and see what the status is as they're journeying back to the homeland. And um, the servants go out and they come back and all they've got to tell Jacob is that we saw Esau and he's got 400 men with him. And they're, they're heading this way. And so if you're Jacob, what are you thinking? You're thinking we got a problem, Right? 
This could be a slaughter. This is a big deal. This is scary. So what does he do? What does he do? Well, we begin to see a softening in Jacob's heart, a softening of his character, a changing of identity. We're going to see that more significantly in a little bit. But I want you to look at verse 9 and look at what Jacob does in the face of this tension, in the face of this threat. What does he do? Verse 9. He prays. And I want us to kind of bore down here into the way that he prays. Because I think this is very significant for us. Verse 9, and Jacob said, said to God, he's praying, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan. So he's, he's hearkening back to when he left to head to Laban's house 20 years ago. He's saying, I didn't have anything when I crossed this river to go up to Laban's house. But now I have become two camps, meaning you've multiplied me greatly. I've got two wives and I've got 11 kids and I've got all these animals. So you've blessed me. Please deliver me. Verse 11, this is key. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So I want you to notice something. Look at verse 9. O Lord, who said to me, right in the middle of verse 9, see that? So look at verse 12. But you said. Jacob here is recounting back to God the promises that God had already told him. See how he does that in his prayer here? I want us to think about this. So one of the things that makes me really happy as a dad is when I can tell that my children are listening. You guys listening? They're drawing. Okay, so when I talk about them, I always, it always perks up their attention. So what I love as a dad is when they listen, right? That makes sense. Like, you can see how the inverse would not make me very happy where they're just constantly blowing me off. And we have to do, deal with, we do have to deal with that at times as well. But I love it. And now in parenting, sometimes either good or bad, your kids will usually reflect to one another in their relationships the way that you treat them. Okay, so it's like these little mirrors walking around with two legs. Another way that I say it sometimes is you see, you get, as a parent, you get to see your sin issues walking around on two legs. It's humbling. Young parents, get ready. There's a lot of you in here. Now, the other thing that can be very humbling is when you hear them talk to one another and you realize that they didn't come up with that snarky little comment on their own. They probably heard it from somewhere else 
or from someone else that lives in the house with them. It's probably Kim, right? <laughs> it's like, where did you get that? You got that from your mother, didn't you? No, probably not, unfortunately. But here's the deal. I love it when I can tell that they're listening and they, spark, and they start to speak in ways that demonstrate that they believe that I have the power to deliver on something that I said I would do. Did you catch that? For example, they may say, Dad, you said that you'd build us a treehouse. Dad, you said that we could go swimming. Dad, you said that we could go get ice cream. Dad, you said that you wouldn't make me take a shower even though I stink. Dad, you said that I could wear my jammies all day, right? Whatever it is. Now, sometimes I can be a little relentless in their reminding me of what I said. Amen? But sometimes I can be a little lazy in my parenting. But think about it. Strip away all the, the sinfulness that can happen in human relationships. Strip that away and think about the blessing of what that demonstrates, what those statements demonstrate. The real cool part is when they say that to me, it demonstrates that they believe that their father can actually deliver. That I can actually follow through on building the treehouse, taking them swimming, going to get ice cream or whatever. And they wouldn't ask unless they had faith in my ability to deliver. Make sense? Now, now I may be sinfully lazy in my parenting at times or let them down and not be perfectly consistent. I want to be, but unfortunately I'm not sometimes. But God is never lazy in his parenting. God is never lazy in his parenting. And Jacob recognizes that in the way that he prays here. I want you to see that. He demonstrates this childlike faith right here at this point in our historical narrative. He turns to God like a child does, and and like like, like a child turns to a good father who believes in his good character and says, Dad, you said... In the face of this threat of Esau, in the face of this massive insecurity of maybe a murderous event that's going to take place, Jacob recounts back to God the promises that God has already made to him. Look at it. Verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, God, God I remember this is what you said. I believe that that you will do what you said. And then look up at verse 9 again. O Lord, who said to me, return to your country. That's what I'm doing, Jacob's doing right now. That's what he's saying to God. I'm doing it right now. I'm returning, like you said, and that you'd give it to me and that you would do good to me. God, I recognize this is what you said. So this is just a great pattern for our praying. Faith filled belief in the character of God that he has spoken and and he'll deliver and I believe it. So check out the pattern here, uh, uh, just more detail of what Jacob does here in his praying. We see him asking for help. We see him confessing his fear and then recounting God's promises back to him. Right? We see him asking for help. Let's see. 
please deliver me. That's a cry for help. Verse 11. For I fear him. See that there? Verse 11. Verse 12. But this is what you said. I'm going to remind you of what you said to me. So this is the pattern of Jacob's praying. And I think that pattern can be for us too. So let's say we have this massive problem that we want to see resolved of of God getting all glory for himself for the nations. And so what do we do? We ask for help. God, we can't do this on our own. And we confess that we're scared because there's a lot of challenges and, 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 and martyrdom is going to be uh, the, the means by which the, the church advances. That's just how it's always worked for church history for some. But here's the promise. Psalm 2.8, that we recount back to God and say, God, you said, you said that if we asked, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 2.8 is in reference to Jesus. And the promise is that Jesus will have the nations. And we should recount back to God. Jesus, God, you said that you would give the nations to Jesus and we are his people. Lord, would you do it? You said that you would do it, Psalm 2.8. Or when you can't pay the bills. And Lord, you go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need your help and I'm scared. But here's what you said, God, in Matthew chapter 6. You said, therefore, I tell you not to be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink. No, your body, what you'll put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor weep nor gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you, not, are, are you of not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? God, you said that you would provide. And some of you may be facing Christian or non-Christian, an assurance of salvation, and you're doubting, like, is this real? Does God really love me? Has he truly saved me? Lord, I'm, I'm scared. But we turn to the Lord and we say, I need your help. I'm scared. But here's what you said, God. You said in Romans 10, 9, that if, that, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be said. God, this is what you said. This is your promise. That helps me be assured of my salvation. And take note, we don't do this you saying, this you said principle with a sense of entitlement. Like, you said, so you owe me. No, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's in a sense of grateful, humble faith. Like, God, you said, and I believe it. You said, and I believe it, and I'm trusting you for it. And God loves that. Hear that, Vine Church. God loves it when we pray this way. He says, I dare you to badger me. I dare you to badger me, he says. That's just the parable that Jesus gave of the persistent widow. And you can go home and read that. Just Google search parable of the persistent widow, and you'll see this principle. It's God saying, I dare you to badger me in prayer. I don't get sick of it because I love it when, as your father, when you as my kids demonstrate that faith in me over and over again and this knowledge of my word and my promises. He loves that. And that's all that Jacob is doing here in his prayer. 
So Jacob here models for us what the Christian life looks like, what the Christian walk with God looks like. Not all of it, but a huge part of it. And here's the deal. Jacob didn't even have a revelation of Jesus yet. He had a promise that Jesus the Messiah was going to come through his lineage. But he didn't know what that meant. He didn't know for sure cross and empty tomb, but we do. We have the, 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 we have the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that Jesus is the yes and amen of all the promises of God. And all that means is that Jesus is the means why we can trust God's word. Because the cross has taken place and the tomb is empty, God's word can be trusted. Every promise that he's given you, because the cross happened and the tomb is empty, you can trust God's promises. All those promises I just rattled off, because of Jesus, you can trust him. God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus is the stamp that says God can be trusted. The tomb is empty. It's a historical fact. Jacob didn't have that. And he's still going this way towards God. How much more should we, 2,000 years later, 2,000 years of church history of seeing God's promises come to fruition, how much more should we take this 32 verses 9, 10, 11, 12 and go, man, this is how I'm going to pray. This is how I'm going to pray. This is how I'm going to pray. God loves it. So I think one of the things that we see about Jacob in this event is that his character started to change. Because before it was all about self-sufficiency and manipulation. You remember that? With Esau, with Isaac, with Laban. And now it's veering a lot more towards God's sufficiency and God dependence. That's what prayer is, right? It's less deceiving, more believing. And what we see as the narrative rolls on is we think that that's happened in Esau's life as well. And I'm just going to tell you how this all wraps up in 32 and 33, and then we're going to circle back and, and, and camp out on one of the strangest texts in the Bible, and then we'll be done. But what happens here in 32 and all of 33 is that Jacob does show up and, and meet with Esau, and they meet, and they weep, and they reconcile. And the amazing thing that I, that, that's, hard to, that's, that's, that's hard to see, it's very easy to miss in all of 33 and just this story of reconciliation between Jacob and Esau is this. It's the fact that Jacob has actually returned to the land and he didn't get killed by his brother. And what does that mean? What that means is yet again, we see that God has been faithful to his promises. He said, Jacob, I'm gonna bring you back. All these obstacles, God overcomes the obstacles, even in spite of the sin of Jacob. And it's come to fruition. It's come to pass. God has been faithful to his word. He's done it. Here comes Jacob returning to the land of promise that God promised him to get, promised to give him so that, so that Jacob's people can have God's presence in his place to become a people that are on his proactive mission. God's mission is moving forward here. See that in the reconciliation of Jacob and Esau. You feel that? It's very important. He will keep his promises. And that's the essence of chapters 32 and 33. We see Jacob's character start to change. 
he begins to, 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 to forsake self-sufficiency and pursue God's sufficiency. And God has been yet again faithful to his promises. Now, let's backtrack. Chapter 32, starting in verse 22. Let's, let's rewind the narrative a little bit. I've already told you the end of the story, but let's back up a little bit. So Jacob, what he's done now is he sent the emissaries of his, of his servants forward to do goodwill offerings to Esau. Well, then he sends them all. He sends his wives to and, and, his, and his kids. Why does he do that? I don't know. It sounds kind of like a cowardly move. But maybe if he's thinking, if I send my wives and my 11 kids, that maybe that'll soften Esau's heart and just kind of, kind of grease the gears a little bit for reconciliation. We don't really know. But what we do know is he's left alone here. And so let's read, starting in verse 22, and see what's going on here. That same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabuk. He took them and sent them across and across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day, of the day. So what appears to be a man shows up and they engage in this combat. It says all night long, that's a pretty intense combat. Okay? Mysterious. It doesn't give us much more info than that, just that it happened. Verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and his hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Okay, so mysterious wrestling match. A man shows up, and this man must be somehow supernatural in some sense because you don't just touch someone's hip, hip socket and dislocate a hip. Okay, that's a supernatural thing. So that's a clue in the text here. But even with a hip out of joint, Jacob still determines. He's a very determined guy, and he won't cease. Verse 26, then he said, the man said, the man in quotes, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob has said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, I think Jacob clearly sensed here that whoever or whatever he was wrestling with was a, a messenger of God, representing God himself, probably an angel. Because if you look back at verse 1 of chapter 32, it says just, it, and this is just like an incidental comment. It just seems kind of like out of nowhere and for no, no reason, but maybe it's for this. Jacob went on his way, so leaving Laban's house, and, and the angels of God met him. No explanation, just that it happened. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanayim. So that's, and then we're just on to a different part of the story. Like that just seems like a random detail. But like there's angels in the area is kind of what the point is, I think. And so I'm inclined to think that he's wrestling with an angel of God, one who could represent and, and speak for God. And I think Jacob knew this too. Why would I say that? Because why would Jacob ask for a blessing unless he knew that this was actually somebody who could represent God, the God that he wanted blessing from? Make sense? So just him asking signifies that he knew this person had the power to bless him. Verse 27. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. 
Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now there's a lot here that's mysterious that we just don't understand. Like, what does it mean to wrestle with an angel? And why did it have to take so long? And so we just got to chalk that up for mystery, and that's okay. The Bible just doesn't explain. But it does give us some things that I think we can say with surety. In the Old Testament days, let's talk about first about this name change thing. In the Old Testament days, someone's name was indicative of their character. Okay? So Jacob means someone who supplants. A supplanter. So what's a supplanter? A supplanter is someone who seeks to replace another or or someone who seeks to overtake another. And we know about Jacob. That's just what his life has been. He sought to overtake his brother Esau. He he tried to to, to supplant him. And, And the angel also said that, Jacob, you've striven with men. That's verse 28. See that? And his life has been nothing but striving, meaning or prevailing against other, other men in his life. His dad, his brother, his uncle. That's just been Jacob's character. But the weird one is like verse 28 when it says that he prevailed against God. Like what does that mean? And in all the commentaries I read this week, it's like the Hebrew's ambiguous and it's just a big fat question mark. We don't really know what that means. Um, and that's okay to say that sometimes with the Bible that there's some ambiguities because we're not God and we're not omniscient. And it's not really God's lack of communication. It's probably our lack of understanding. But if I were to just take a stab at it, I were to guess that I think what it means prevailing is not in the sense of like they're in some equal competition, but that Jacob engaged with a messenger of the Lord who had the power to do anything ultimately he wanted to with Jacob. But because of God's mercy, God wanted to make a point here. And so he survived, prevailing against God in the sense that you encountered the Lord and yet you survived. And that was God's mercy because God allowed it to happen. Now, that's just a guess, a bit of conjecture. But here's what we do know. That's clear from the text. Jacob receives a new identity, a name change. Very significant in the Bible when God changes someone's name. Think Abram to Abraham. Think Paul to Saul. Meaning the old Jacob is gone and the new Jacob has come. And we've seen some indication of that, right? Repentance towards towards, uh, Esau and, 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 and a desire to forsake the self-sufficiency and a willingness to pray like we've talked about and depend on the Lord and not himself. So a new identity has emerged. Let's keep reading, 29. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So it's like Jacob acknowledges that this combat wasn't, like he wasn't on equal footing. That's clear to him. He's been, in a sense, forced to submit. And he acknowledges that he's been delivered. Peniel 
there, see that word peniel? That means the face of God. And he's, he's, he's encountered God and God has shown him mercy. And so when that happens to anybody, what's the response? It's worship. And that's what we see Jacob doing here. Yet this new reaffirmed blessing that he receives from the Lord, see that? He was, he was blessed. And this new identity that he's received, that's not it. It's not without struggle. Verse 31, the sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Limping because of his hip. All right, so let's, let's take the mystery out of this text and let's just camp out on what we know for sure. Two things. In this encounter with God, he repents and he believes. We've talked about the indications of that. It's not explicit in the text, but it's indicated in the text. Repentance with Esau, which indicates a softening of his heart towards the Lord, evidenced by his praying and depending. So he repents and believes in God, and what happens? He receives a new name, and he received a new limp. He, when he repents and believes in God, he receives a new name, and he receives a new limp. And this is somewhat of a pattern in the Bible. Like, if you, if you repent and trust God, treasure and trust Jesus, don't be surprised when you get a new name, indicative of a new identity, and you get a new limp. So let's talk about name, let's talk about limp. First, the name. Just like Jacob received a new name, when you become a Christian, you receive a new name as well. Well, what does that mean? Well, think about it like this. When you, when you stand up publicly and you say, I want to declare before God and witnesses publicly that Jesus, that I believe in Jesus, and that's not just intellectual assent. That means I trust in Jesus and I treasure Jesus. Not just that I believe in him, but that I want him above all else. And I cast myself upon him. That's what it means to believe and become a Christian. It doesn't mean intellectual assent doesn't mean just like, yeah, I believe that this, that this chair exists. No, it's like I'm willing to sit in it. I trust it. You see the difference? So you stand up and say that, and you become a Christian, and then what happens? You get baptized. And when we baptize you, we don't use language just for the fun of it. We use intentional language that comes straight out of the Great Commission, baptizing them Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you're buried with him in baptism, buried in his likeness, united to him in his death. The, the, the old you is gone because, because you're, now you're going to be defined by being raised to walk in new life, just like Jesus was raised from the dead to have new life, we start to experience that, experience that now. So you're uh, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have a new name. That's who you are. You're no longer defined by a name that may be fraught with sin issues and baggage. That doesn't define you anymore. Zach, as indicated by all these sin issues that I've had for 39 years. No, 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 that's not who I am anymore because I've been buried with him in his death and I've been raised to walk in his new life and his name is now my name. I'm a child, just like my kids bear my name, 
Our Father gives us his name. That's who you are. You're a child of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have a new name. Think about it like this as well. If you say you're a Christian, all that word Christian means is little Christ. So my name, more profoundly than my name, Zach Nielsen, is my name, Christian, son of the Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit. That's who I am. And, 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 and I want you to get that. Your, your name, Christian, your name, son or daughter of the king, is more than John or more than Chase or more than Zach or Craig or Shanna. Literally, I want you to feel that. Theologically, it's true. That's what defines you more than your birth name. So Jacob's got a new name that's symbolic of a new identity, just like you get a new name, symbolic of your new identity. And also, Jacob got a new limp. So don't be surprised if you walk with a limp after seeking God's blessing to you by treasuring and trusting Jesus. Don't be surprised if you walk with a limp. God loves to use people that walk with a limp. And in fact, I would go so far as to say as it's a requirement. So what does that mean? Now, we all, all walk with, with different limps in different ways. And you may look at somebody down the row or down the street and go, man, those people have got it all together. Well, it's not true. Either you just don't know them well enough or they're just hiding. Okay? Everyone's got a limp. And Christians are first and foremost defined not by a sense of all togetherness, but rather God by his spirit walking with us as we limp. Did you catch that? That's what it means to be a Christian. A lot of people spread the word, hear ye, hear ye. Like, shout it from the rooftops. Christianity is not about all togetherness. It's all about a great God who does have it all together, who lives inside of us, who walks with us as we limp. You with me? And to the degree that we don't embrace that, the world will never know what true Christianity is all about. So friends, let's dive in right there, okay? So I'll just be, I'll just be fully disclosed on, on, on one of mine. I got plenty, but here's one. Starting last summer, I started having some, um, what I would say is just irrational emotions that were having a detrimental impact on my life like I'd never had before. And the more clinical way to talk about that is anxiety and depression. And what that looks like for me is this massive chasm between what I know is true and how I feel. Like typically your truth should be the foundation of your emotions and those should be synonymous. And for some reason in my life, they started being way different. Like I know this is true in my head, but I feel totally different. I know that God is good and he's on the throne and nothing can touch me ultimately, but I feel like everything's falling apart. Why is that? And I, I can't bridge this chasm on my own for whatever reason. And there's a lot I could say about that. But in some ways, my job as a pastor, I couldn't love it anymore and I couldn't feel more called or more content in my calling. And I love everything about it. But in some ways, if I don't have proper boundaries and checks in my life, Doing the things I love will tank me emotionally. 
And I, and I can go off on these like weird rabbit trails where I can't control how I feel in reference, even in reference to the things that I know are true. Now, some of you, that just sounds crazy. And you're like, dude, you just need to knock that off. And, and, and I, and I would have thought that too when I was 25 or, um, you know, when I just didn't have any experience. And some of you will never know what that's like because everyone has different limps. This is one of mine. Uh, some of you know exactly what, the, what I'm talking about. Um, and so I just want you to know, like, again, I say it all the time, but pastors are not super Christians. We walk with limps just like you guys do. And so we got to just get in there together and link arms and, and run to the one who doesn't have limps and do that together. Okay? So I got nothing to hide, and you shouldn't either. Because my God is sufficient, and I'm not. But we're going to press on together. Okay? But here's the deal. I just said that God doesn't have a limp, but he, here's, here's the irony and the, um, the paradox of, of our God and of Christianity itself. Christ himself chose to walk with a limp. What could be more limping than God himself taking on human flesh, flesh that gets tired? God doesn't get tired, but Jesus did. Flesh that gets hungry. Like, that's a weakness. That, that, that's a limitation, Flesh that has to go to bed. Like Jesus had to do all those things. God himself enters into our limping. God himself knows what it's like to have a hip out of socket like Jacob. God himself knows what it's like to have emotions that, that go all over the place. God himself knows what it's like. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted and to be without sin. See, God himself chose to walk with a limp so that we could follow him into it, knowing that this limping will force us to renounce all of our Jacob-like self-sufficiency and trust and treasure the all-sufficiency of the, one, of the only one who doesn't have a limp, who's truly our only hope. And, 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 and the limp reminds us of this. That's why it's so important to not despise your limp. Don't despise it. It's there for your blessing. Because why? Because you're going to get blessed when you turn and trust him and not yourself, just like Jacob. It keeps us dependent. So if I'm having irrational emotions, I don't run off and go, man, I'm a super pastor and I got this. I get on my knees and I'm like, Lord, would you help me? Because sometimes I feel like I can't even get up here and do this again. So that makes me real dependent. And you, you, you do the same thing, whether it's whatever it is. Like, my family's a disaster, and I can't handle going home for Christmas. Lord, would you help me? And I want to see my, my neighborhood reached for Christ, and I'm powerless to change the human heart and to make a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. I can't do that. Lord, would you do it? I'm coming to you. I'm dependent. And, and, and my parenting is really hard right now. Lord, can you help me? Lord, I'm dependent on you. See? See what I'm, see what I'm saying here? That's what God wants for you. My marriage is challenging right now, and we've got conflict, and I can't see my way out of it. Lord, would you help us? That's what he wants. i got desires that are out of control, whether it's lust of the flesh with food or sex or whatever. Lord, this feels out of control. Would you help me? God loves that kind of praying. God, you said you, you would help me when I turned to you. Would you help me? God loves that kind of praying. 
you're a Christian here today, that old name and that old character is not who you are, just like Jacob. You have a new name, and God is creating a new character that follows that name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Christian. And he wounds those he loves. He always wounds those he loves. Why would he do that? Because he wants us to embrace our dependence. And if we weren't wounded, we would just have it all together. So don't despise your limp. Take it to Jesus. Take it to him. The Bible says that we have this treasure in jars of clay. You know, a jar of clay shatters very easily. It's not, it's not jars of iron, because if it was a jar of iron, we get really excited about the iron. No, no, no. It says we have this treasure, this gospel message, this treasure in jars of clay, so that we know that the power is not from us, it's from God. And when we know that, that's when God gets the glory. Because he's the one that sustains clay pots. And then we get the joy of knowing that he's present in our lives. And he's the one that sustains. Let's pray. God, would you help us to not despise our limp, but recognize our new identity in the midst of our limping. And we thank you that it's true. And may you continue by the power of your spirit instill those things in us day after day after day so that we more joyfully walk towards you together with our limp, knowing that you get the glory through the gospel, the, the cross and the empty tomb for us, for those who treasure and trust Jesus, knowing that these things can be true in light of that. May it be so in Jesus' name, amen.